The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I'm thankful for a chance to tell my soul to rejoice now now and for forevermore. Thank you for the chance to sing that, and I pray that you would, now as we turn to your word, that you would press that into us even more deeply, that you would give us joy, you would give us cause to rejoice. You show us yourself in all of your goodness, and teach us and make us wise and careful. We live in a world that is full of distraction and pulls us away, and will you, will you this morning take your word and in some different ways probably for each one of us, draw us back and fasten us to you. You are the source of joy forevermore. So help us to hold tight to you and to, and to build into ourselves seeds that will blossom into, into plants of joy. So teach us this morning, Lord. Draw us to attend to this passage. Make it, make it live in us. Make us wise with it, careful. Honor your name and build your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We all know that life is full of people who see things just a little bit differently than we do. And that's fine. For those of us who are Christians in the world, we, however, are keenly aware that we are a minority in this place. And so, all around us, there is, there is a majority of people in the world who don't see things spiritually the same way that we do. And that creates a challenge. We live here as aliens and strangers in the world, well aware that most around us disagree with the message of God given in this book, the Bible. We talked about it last week, this, this Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, the end of it, we, we saw how this is God's word to us, given to him, given by him to us as he carried along his writers and controlled every word so that they got all the words right and so that all the words got to us to safely guide us and inform us and to bless us like a lamp shining in a dark place here in this dark world. We, we see that, we understand it, and we also know that the world all around us doesn't see that and doesn't understand it and disagrees. And it's going to offer up all kinds of other things that are, that are suggested to be true and suggested to be better guides and suggested to be better flashlights, all kinds of things that aren't true. We understand that. We expect that. We're not really that bothered by it. But what we might not be ready for is someone in our own midst. Someone who we thought was one of us suddenly acting like one of them. That might be a surprise. Whenever that happens in life, in any kind of thing in life, whenever somebody who you think is on your side of the line of scrimmage, so to speak, begins to play for the other team, that's that's discombobulating in some way. It's surprising. It brings a sense of betrayal, even more so when we're talking about Christian faith because of what's at stake here. 
or at least surprise and maybe feel betrayed and perhaps raise some questions. Am I wrong about this? Am I seeing this wrong? Because he thinks so, and he switched teams here. Maybe I should follow him. I wonder. Maybe that kind of questioning sort of arises in your mind, but if not, there at least is a sense of surprise and betrayal. What do we make of that? When someone on this side leaves the true Christian faith and says they see it differently now, or worse, they begin to teach other people and try to influence them to come away and do likewise, to leave. What do we do with that? How do we, how do we respond to that? Well, 2 Peter 2 will begin to tell us, and as it does so, what you may notice this week and in a number of following weeks, what you may notice if you were here a few months back when we preached through the book of Jude, is that Peter is about to use the book of Jude as his framework for about a chapter and a half here or so, as, as his framework for addressing this very problem of people inside the church who profess to be Christians, who look like they were one of us, now leaving and, in fact, inviting, teaching, influencing, trying to persuade others to leave also. He's going to use, without quoting it directly, he's going to use clearly this word of God, the book of Jude, to answer a very similar problem. Jude's problem was that these folks were coming in from the outside. Peter's problem is that they are rising from the inside. But it's a pretty similar problem. And so Jude's going to show up here a whole bunch in the next several weeks. So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to, I'm going to preach it as, as Second Peter, but a number of times I'll make references to Jude. You may think, like, this sounds pretty familiar, because it is. Peter's going to tell us, with the help of Jude, how do we respond to, how do we think about and interact with those who are on the inside and are teaching what is false attempting to persuade others to follow them. That's what we're going to start looking at this morning. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 of 2 Peter chapter 2 and then draw two observations. So here's the passage. Peter writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Second Peter 2. Two observations, here's the first. Watch out. False teachers among us are dangerously destructive, but pretty persuasive. Watch out. There's a warning there. Watch out. False teachers among us are dangerously destructive, but pretty persuasive. Verse 1 starts with a contrast with what we saw last week, the affirmation of God's spirit, carrying along God's prophets to give us God's word and truth. That, all was last week, that's true. But also, this also was always true. 
false prophets arose among the people. Throughout the entirety of Israel's long history, you can read throughout the whole Old Testament, and always, there were always some people around who said they had a message from God, but they didn't. They often clustered together in groups, oftentimes surrounding a bad king, and oftentimes proclaiming to him and to the people that God was for them, that God's blessing was on them, that everything was going really well, affirming their sin and their, their, their false plans and, and prophesying peace to them while God was preparing destruction. That, that story is often in the Old Testament. People gathered around to prophesy, but they had no authority and their message was false and they always ended up judged but they were also always around, arising right from among the people, right from the midst of the people of God. They were there, false prophets, and just as there were false prophets, so also will there be false teachers among you, just the same. And already, we could almost stop right there, pause right there for a second. Already, this is, this is a little bit of the takeaway. There always are going to be false teachers. For sure, we live in the New Covenant now, and lots of things are different. Particularly, the ministry of the Spirit within the hearts of individual Christians is, is quite different. Things have changed, but some things have not changed, and one of the things that hasn't changed is how the people of God is identified. We can only look at the outside of people. And the people of God gathers when individual people say, Yep, that's me, I'm in, and, and say it with, with their own words, and they voluntarily associate, and we look at them, and there's the people of God gathered, but we can't look at the heart. So the unique thing about the ministry of the, of the Spirit is that it's an internal ministry, but we can't see a lot of that. So there could be, and Peter is saying will be, this is the case, there could be in that group some who don't actually belong to God. But say they do. Weeds among the wheat, to use Jesus' terminology. They look similar but aren't, and at some point they may show themselves. So don't be surprised. That's, that's a little bit of Peter's point here. This scenario we're dealing with is not surprising. Don't, don't be shocked. And a lot of people who show themselves to be this will just kind of wander away. They just kind of become cold and drift away. But others won't. They'll stick around and become teachers and influencers. In large part because, if you skip ahead to look at verse 3, they figured out that they can profit from being influencers and teachers. They figured out that there's something they can gain. They, they could leave, but if they stay, they can gain something. They figured out in their greed, they will exploit you. There's a greed to them that wants to use the church, that wants to use individual Christians, in fact, to in some way gain something for themselves. Maybe just by getting an enhanced reputation gathering around them a following of, of people who will affirm them and who will, who will give them some sort of power over a group or some sort of prestige and, and, and a following. That may just stroke their egos out. That may be what they're gaining. But a lot of times, inevitably, somehow or another, that leads to money. Greedy for financial gain. 
A lot of folks have figured out if I stick around and I teach something in some way that, that can gather a following, there will be right behind that speaker fees and conference fees and maybe just the ordinary offerings of a church and a salary or maybe they're a traveling person and there's love offerings to be acquired. But somehow or another, there's some money in it. So much exploitation based on the love of self, based in cleverly devised myths of their own. It says using false words. That language there echoes something from up in verse 16, which we looked at in some previous weeks. Some of these folks accuse the apostles of teaching cleverly devised myths, stuff they made up. And Peter responded to that, refuted it. We teach now what we witnessed, what we saw and heard, and what was written in the word of God. But here now in verse 3, he turns the tables and says, these guys, in fact, are the ones making up stuff from thin air. And they're doing it to use you exploit you. Power and reputation and public affirmation maybe, but also just finances. That's why they're teaching falsely. Back in verse 1, here's what they're teaching. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secretly bringing in is less about being sneaky and more about bringing in. It's more about something that they brought in from the outside that is not properly ours. It's not actually Christian. And they were not overt about where they got it. They got it from the world, which means it's not Christian. It's worldly. And they've brought it in, and they're propagating it. It's of the world, and it's wrong, and it's destructive. That's the emphasis here. Destructive. In our modern vocabulary, we we see the word heresy, and that kind of catches our eye because we hear the word heresy, and we define it as something that's automatically wrong, like something like false teaching or false doctrine. In the original language, actually, heresy is a neutral word. It just means teaching, doctrine, school of thought, school of practice. It's just neutral. When you add the word destructive onto it, that's when it gets bad. It's a destructive word school of thought and practice. And that's worse than it actually even sounds because destructive does not mean just harmful or hurtful, bad. It means eternally destroying. You can see it at the end of the same verse. They are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Same word. That's destruction of eternal judgment in hell. These false teachers among the church show themselves as they teach and commend and recommend and offer non-Christian worldly teaching that is of the sort that leads to hell. That's extremely serious. It doesn't get any more serious than that. We understand that. We, we hear that, and, and in doing so, we are alerted to the problem And we also are alerted first to what's not the problem, what he's not talking about. I mean, to kind of create a little mental category for what he's not talking about. False teaching, in this critical sense, is not just teaching that is incorrect. You need to have a mental category for bad teaching, poor teaching, teaching that makes mistakes, teaching that misunderstands, teaching that comes to the 
a confused expression of, a, of a, something that's not true. We've got to have a category for mistake. There's all kinds of stuff in the church that's taught and taught poorly. And then there are a whole bunch of questions that Christians deal with and interact and, and teach on that is controversial or difficult to understand. So we might engage with questions like, how old is the earth? What's the proper role of men and women in the church? Is speaking in tongues for today? And you may have an opinion about that, and, and I do for sure, and I think there's a right answer to that. But the other answer is not false teaching in this sense. It might be wrong, but it's not false in this sense. False teaching, so we gotta have a category there for mistake and not brand everybody who makes a mistake a false teacher. False teaching, as Peter means it, is things that if you believe and practice them, brings upon you divine, eternal judgment. He doesn't say what exactly, only that it's plural, heresies. So it could be a number of things, lots of different things would fall in this category. It would have to entail, though, somehow undermining true, surrendered faith in the true gospel. Such as, specifically, next phrase, even denying the master who bought them. Here's the first overt similarity to Jude. If you're taking notes, you could jot down the margin, Jude, verse 4, very similar. In Jude 4, Jude writes of ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Peter's going to talk about sensuality in the next verse. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's Jude. Here, Peter says they deny the master. Not Lord, master. That's a very strong word. It's a master who has dominion over us, like a master of slaves does. Very strong and very purposeful. That's exactly the image he's using here, the master who bought them. Now sometimes people take this little phrase, deny the master who bought them, and pick it up out of this context and move it over here and try to put it down in the middle of another context and another discussion, specifically a discussion about the atonement, debating the extent of and the, the power in the atonement and, and who does Christ's blood buy and who does he pay for and how does that all work? These people are obviously rejecting Christ and they're going to hell, did Christ pay for them? What does that mean? And there's a lot of discussion there. And that's a great discussion to have. But actually, this verse has nothing to contribute to it. That's a great discussion to have. It's just not here. Peter is speaking here in a particular context, making a very specific point. We're talking here about false teachers within the church. And they are not denying Jesus in every way. They are not disowning or disavowing him. They are not saying, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I reject this whole thing. He's not my savior. That would put an immediate end to their false teaching gig. 
That would get them ostracized immediately. You can't be a false teacher in the church if you raise your hand and say, I'm not a Christian. Nobody, nobody would listen. They, in fact, quite the opposite. They, they want to remain among us. They want to remain received. And so on the contrary, they are very emphatically affirming. Listen to all this language here. They would say this very emphatically and may even believe it themselves. They would say very emphatically, I have been bought by the blood of Jesus. He redeemed me from slavery. Yes, for sure. He saved me. He broke my bonds and set me free. I'm a Christian. I now have Christian liberty. I'm free, not under law. I'm under grace. That's all very, very Christian language. Every one of those phrases, all those sentences, very, very Christian language. And they would say, amen to that. What they are denying is the master part. The master part of the one who bought them. They say Christians are bought by the blood, bought out from bondage and set free, all by grace. And then they would add on, and that for sure does not include me in any way becoming in bonds again to some other master like a slave. I'm free in Christ. Meanwhile, the apostle and the Bible says Christians are bought by the blood, bought out from bondage to the flesh, and set free from sin. Not set free, set free from sin. Set free then to walk in righteousness claimed by another master. We are all slaves to Christ. And in claiming us as his own, he saved us and brought us to know him and gave us then all things necessary to walk in righteousness. He, he fulfilled all the promises in us and gave us everything that we need to pursue now life and godliness, to live out his image in this world, to live free from the corruption of the world that's in it due to false desires. First Peter chapter 1, which is why Peter started there. Because that's what these guys deny. The core of false teaching is, this is, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can be false teaching, but here's something at the very core of it, is that we have been set, we've been forgiven and set at liberty to go do what we want. Jude confronted that. They pervert the grace of God in sensuality. Peter has to confront it here again. Same problem, different context, same problem. In our own language, what we might say is people deny the lordship of King Jesus the Savior. And that road leads to destruction in hell. It perverts true grace and teaches self-rule for self-pleasing purposes, leaving self and self's desires as Lord and Master, self still on the throne of self's heart. That is so very dangerous to those in the church, but it's common. It's dangerous to those in the church, and it's dangerous to those outside of the church too who may be watching and trying to figure out what is this Christian thing. If they hear a gospel like that, what they hear is, I can be forgiven 
and do whatever I want. And then if they watch, what they see is they see people who say, I'm forgiven, Jesus is my savior, I'm bought by the blood, but they walk in all the sensuality, verse two, in all the sensuality of the world. They live just like everyone else. Is that what the gospel actually is? No, it's a perversion of the gospel. A very subtle changing of the message of salvation. And so what people who watch from the outside would get is they'd get the wrong message and the way of truth would be blasphemed. It's so dangerous. But it's pretty persuasive. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Many from within the church. Many will follow their sensuality. Read and think about that sentence. He does not say, many will follow their teaching. Many will follow the sensuality. That then gets around to being justified by the teaching. This, of course, is the main appeal. The teaching just makes the appeal seem possible, permissible, probably. And this is what we have to note. This, this is kind of what it boils down to for us. Yeah, there's a, there's a message in here about be on guard, watch out for, for false teachers and kind of identify them and stay away from them. But really, watch out when they're, they're going to cast the hook your direction. And the, the hook is not going to look like a theology of no lordship, the hook is going to look like sensuality. That's our true human kryptonite. We are, are very vulnerable to sensual, physical pleasure. It lures us. If you think about that very broadly, like you know, the center... The highway right down the middle is all things sexual. But around the perimeter is stuff that's not exactly sexual, but sensual. That word's a little broader than just sexual. We can include in there anything that would stimulate and satisfy our appetites. We can include things like, if you want to, get specific recreational drug use or excessive drinking, sexual sort of things that aren't really about activity, but are just kind of like exciting. Anything that would be stimulating. And if you step back one layer, which I think is kind of important, I kind of try to do this just to think a little bit deeper into it. Step back from the actual activities and try to consider what do the activities get? What do they get for me? What gets stimulated? Certainly, of course, physically, there's a feeling there. But often there's a little bit more. There's, sometimes I, I might call it like a, a relational feel-good. An acceptance that, I, that I'm, I'm in and I'm... I'm a little bit, let my guard down vulnerable, and I'm embraced. And I enjoy that. 
Sometimes there's a release from pressure or stress. We, we sometimes say we blow off some steam at a party. You get a little bit of a buzz with some drinks and some friends and, and the worries go away. That's not sexual, but it's sensual. There's a feeling to it of, ah. That's what lures us. And it always has. The offer of a more pleasurable life on our own terms, what we think is best, not under the rule of God, since the fall in the garden, from the beginning, since the fall in the garden, that's been the lie, the hook cast our direction. And Peter's going to go towards sensuality in his very next point, and then, it, and then he's going to talk about what comes of that. And we need to keep in mind what comes of that, this false teaching and this turning to sensuality. We need to keep in mind what comes of that, and we need to face it like the sobering splash of cold water that it is. It leads to destruction. Bank on it. But I'm going to put it over here. That's the second point. Because if that's all we have in our minds, we do have to have that. But if that's all we have in our minds, we're just going to be vulnerable to feeding the stereotype that Christian faith and the true Christian God, the Master, is in the end very dreary. The pleasure of sensuality. No. And if you do it, I'm going to punish you. That's what we all think God is. And if all we have in mind is what's coming, the, the judgment, we're just going to feed that. I mean, you put yourself in the sensual environment. I mean, and I, and I can put myself in these places. I've been there. You've been there. I mean, you've got the whole first floor of the fraternity house or your workmate's condo or the bar or whatever it is. And, and everything there, the, the music is just right. And the mood lighting is perfect. A little tinkle of glass in the background and the smells, a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of cigarette smoke and some cologne and perfume all kind of mixed together there and it's, it's perfect. And the beautiful people are there being beautiful. And sliding up next to you and inviting you in. It feels so good to be there and to be one of those people and to be, and to be in. And then what you're taking in, whether, it's, whether you're drinking it or injecting it or kissing it, whatever it is that you're doing there, it's just so, ah. Man, I was made for this. This feels so good. And yeah, work sucks. <laughs> but it's gone. It's gone. Oh, thank goodness. This is so amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just right, and it's fun, and and we're laughing and we're enjoying this and so is she and so is he and so are all of us and this is just, and then along comes God. No! Oh man, really? That's what I thought. It's kind of afraid of. Man, 
this felt so. And God says, and if you do, I'm going to punish you in hell forever. Oh my goodness, really? I mean, really? Obviously, I'm, I'm elaborating this, but what I'm trying to do, I want, as best I can, I want you to feel that. You've been there, probably. I've been there. You've been that environment, and it feels so good. And we come along, and then we read about the God who says, N-O to that. And we try to tell other people about the God who says, N-O to that. And you kind of feel like, the cosmic killjoy is actually who he is. You know that phrase? That was a phrase more of my youth. God who is the cosmic ruler is here. His main job is to kill all the joy. Man, that's what I was afraid of. That's what people dread. And that's what false teachers prey upon. Because they know that's in you. That's, there's something there that draws you in, and they prey upon that. And they, they'll offer up, I mean, I guess you can follow that God who, who says no to everything that's any good. I guess you can, but I think that God wants us to be happy. And I think that God's a God of love. doesn't matter who you love. doesn't matter what you do. God's a God of love. doesn't matter what you take in. God made it all anyway, right? It's all here in the world. It's, it's, just, it's just God's a God who wants us to be happy, wants us to enjoy this. I mean, follow that if you want to. Go ahead. But I'm, I'm going this way. They prey upon that to our great destruction. And if that's all that we have in mind is the N-O, and when we feel threatened, we underline it twice, we're going to miss people and leave ourselves actually vulnerable. You have an enemy who's a really, really, really clever opponent. And he understands if, if it didn't work casting like this, I'm going I'm to come over here and I'm going to cast like this. He's working on you constantly. He doesn't cast once and give up. You leave yourself vulnerable too. We need to have a little bit more than just the point that's coming. So keep this more in mind. The master who said, the master who said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's daily, take up your cross. Daily, die to yourself. Daily, your own desires, your own impulses, your own feeling. Put to death, denied, said no to. In the very next sentence also said, for whoever would try to keep his life, I'm just going to lose it, but whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. I promise. The master who said, give up everything, sell it all, and come follow me, also said right after that, whoever loses his life and his spouse and his kids and his home and his money for me and for the kingdom will get it back 100-fold in this life and eternal life in the life to come. The world, he says, can't outgive me. 
I made the world, and every good gift in it comes from my hand, and I mean it for you. You love pleasure because I made you to love it. You have senses that can be stimulated because I gave them to you and made that work. You have endorphins that will run and, and, and nerves that will fire, all because I put it in there. I arranged all of that. I am way, way, way in favor of your stimulation. Way. Way in favor. I love pleasure. I made you to love pleasure. All the benefits of sensuality are benefits because I made them to be. And I know best how and when and in what context you are to experience all these blessings that I gave. You'll only find it in submission to me. I promise. Don't buy the lie that they know best how, apart from me, the one who made it all, that they know best how to, under your own authority, figure out life for yourself and how to please yourself. They offer you sensuality in whatever way you like. I offer you pleasure forevermore. Come and find it. We need to keep that in mind and on the tips of our tongues. Now, there's a lot of ways you could elaborate on that. You could talk about it. You could, you could kind of work on So take me back to the frat house Take me back to the bar. How exactly is that matched in the Bible study? And if I had more time, I'd say two things. I'd say, and elaborate on, well, it's not, but it is. When Jesus says you get it back a hundredfold, he doesn't mean you get a hundred wives back or a hundred times your salary. He means that you get something that matches such that you'll say, I did not get ripped off. I did not get ripped off. You'll say that but it might not be exactly the same thing. So it might not be matched, but it will be in that all those things that are stimulated in one way can be stimulated in another way, in a way that's holy and righteous and just. That can all be elaborated on, should be. We should think about that. We should become people who are really good at talking about pleasure. I need to hear that all the time. I think you do, and I know the world does. But we find that under the hand of the master. And the lie that gets cast your way is, no, you don't. The master is about getting rid of all the fun stuff. He sets you free so that you can pursue it yourself. That's a lie. Don't buy it. It is dangerously destructive but really tempting. Fight it by keeping in mind that he's the God of pleasure. But also keep in mind the second point which is shorter. God's judgment will bring destruction to false teachers soon enough. God's judgment will bring destruction to false teachers soon enough. A listener might process a good bit of what I've been saying already and have two opposite reactions, like one right after the other. You might hear the, the, the destruction, the, the false teaching, and you might kind of see, whoa, that, that is dangerous. That, that is a distortion of the, the gospel that does endanger people in the church, that does blaspheme it and mislead people out. That's really dangerous. And then second, right on the heels of that, so why doesn't God put a stop to that? Back to back, you could ask those two questions. He loves the church, right? He wants to protect his flock from wolves, right? He wants the truth about him seen and known outside of the church for the sake of the gospel. 
And these guys, these false teachers, they're clearly endangering all that God loves and all that God wants. And he's let this go on now for a couple thousand years. Why does he put a stop to it? And a Christian might ask that with a bit of bewilderment or disappointment. But of course, the false teachers themselves would ask that sort of question with an implied denial hidden in it. Kind of the question that is a statement. If it's this bad, how come God doesn't judge and destroy it? Huh? Because, guys, it's not this bad. The God who loves and saves us doesn't judge and destroy. See? I just said it again. And I'm still standing right here. God loves. He doesn't judge. God wants us to be happy. Proof of that? I'm still here and having a good time. You should try it. That also can be pretty persuasive and a little bit confusing. And really, that's kind of why Peter's writing this, to help us to deal with this, to, to, to resist their temptation and to, to know what's going on here. He's writing to keep us away from them and to keep us from falling for it. So he tells us how bad it is, how destructive it is. That's the first point. And then speaks to whether or not God's going to do anything about it. He will. They bring in destructive teaching and, verse 1, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And then again, end of verse 3, their condemnation from long ago, the condemnation of false teachers and prophets spoken of long ago, settled in fact. It's not idle, meaning that it's not been nullified or canceled or tabled or set aside. It's still active. Their destruction is not asleep. It's awake and working, approaching closer each day. It's coming. So you, you, go to, you go to the website and the status on judgment says pending. Not happened yet, but also not deleted. It's there still, pending. And if you look back at history, God's track record on this sort of thing, as Peter's going to do in the very next verses, so we'll see this very shortly. The very next verses are Peter looking back at God's track record on pending judgments. And just looking ahead just a little bit, what you find if you look back at the track record is the judgment of Noah's Ark was pending for a while. For years, in fact. Pending. And then the last nail was driven home. God closed up the door and it started to rain. The judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah was pending for a while, years in fact. And then it wasn't. It started to rain. Not water, but fire. You'd be a fool to think that this judgment won't come when so many others already did. So why hasn't it? Why is he waiting? Well, he has his reasons and his timing. But rest assured and be warned, God's judgment will bring destruction to false teachers soon enough. So you don't need to fear their influence 
but you do need to stay far away from them so whatever falls on them doesn't fall on you also. That's the warning. Watch out. Let me pray. Father, will you help us to be alert and wise, to be innocent as doves but wise as serpents? We need your help. So keep us clear of false teaching and make us wise counselors to each other and to others around us as to what the truth is, the truth of the gospel and the truth about the master and give us hope in him. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.